intuitive uh, and meaningful displays of laboratory test results uh, for patient online portals. Anybody here work with patient online portals? Just, just a, anybody have any difficulty with them? Yeah, just a few. So, uh, you know, this again is critical to what we do as we go forward as a medical community. And so, uh, Brian is really right in the thick of it in terms of understanding actually it is what, how we actually use these tools. So other than that, just to embarrass him a little more, so uh, we, have, we have been friends for a long time. He, he and I are both associate editors for uh, medical decision making. He's actually a bit of a rock star. He has been on NPR and on PBS Nova presenting his work. So you can look that up if you want to see him wearing one of his other purple shirts. And uh, so we have worked uh, many and many projects together. He has taught me a great deal about uh, decision psychology and risk communication. And it is really uh, my pleasure to introduce him. And just a quick word of wise, you might want to ask about improv later. So. Sure. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, thanks to James for the introduction. And thank you all for uh, allowing me to speak to you today. Um, I want to talk about patients and health data and how we can help patients make sense of what we give them, what they need to understand on an ongoing basis to manage their health. But before I do that, I need to reintroduce myself. Because in addition to my academic credentials, there is another identity of mine that is core to what I'm about to talk to you about. My name is Brian Zickman Fisher, and today is day plus 6,257 since I received an unrelated donor bone marrow transplant for myelodysplastic syndrome. That experience of going through the process of choosing to do a bone marrow transplant, all of the test results, all of the things that came along with that experience has colored my academic career from the very start. And it will come through in a variety of ways today. Um, because when we get down to it, right, it's, it's a nice, example of some of the challenges we face, except taken to an extreme, right? There's the, there's the risk in, inherent in that procedure. And I can spend, I can do many talks about risk, but today's talk is not actually about risk. Today's talk is more about data. And so I want to tell you a story related to my own recovery. There was a time when I was still inpatient when, you know, I was getting bad results done on a daily basis, and because I'm a numerate educated person. I was reading all of these results and following them on. And I saw this. So when the attendant came around, I pointed to this and I said, hey, this looks higher than it was the last few times I looked at this. Um, talk about this. And I swear, this is the following, what happened was the following. She said to me, oh. Don't worry. I'll tell you when to worry. All right. First of all, let me channel my teenage daughter for a moment. <laughs> oh, no, you didn't. You did not just tell me when to worry. I will worry when I damn well want to. But second, really? I'm going through a procedure which literally has a chance of killing me. You're giving me access to this information. It's relevant to my understanding my status. And the best we can do is to tell me, I'll tell you when to worry. No. 
We can do better than that. We need to do better than that. Because numbers are omnipresent in healthcare, in what it means to be a patient in today's world. Right? Let's think about this. Right? Let's start with blood test results, what I was, this particular example. Right? I'm not even covering the full range, but we've got things like bilirubin. We've got things like hemoglobin A1c. If you're a patient with diabetes, you've got complete blood counts, which I was following on an ongoing basis. You've got hormone levels if you happen to have thyroid issues, and on and on and on. And that's just one type of data that we deal with, because that's just the lab stuff here. Then there's the home test results that we might be facing, like blood pressure or blood glucose, et cetera. And that's just tests. Now let's talk about this, the other part of my world, which is, of course, risk. Right? We've got disease risks, whether for cancer or cardiovascular disease or diabetes or on and on. And then, of course, if you have any of these things, you need to do treatment and treatments have their own risks associated with them because they have success rates and they might have complication risks and they might have side effects and they might be false positives if you're screening. And then, of course, if you want to go further than that, let's talk about weight. Let's talk about exercise monitors. How many of you have a Fitbit? Can you know how to count the Fitbit? Do you know what to do when you've got 6,000 steps versus 7,000 steps? Or calorie counts or fat grams or nutrition labels. Let's just, I mean, the volume of information on a single nutrition label is substantial. Can we really deal with that. And I'm not even getting into the question of, do you know what a serving size looks like? And can you actually figure out what 200 calories looks like? And then you've got things like temperature. I, I have kids. right? Doing the medication dosing adjustment for a kid who's a certain weight, and then you, you know. OK, numbers are everywhere, which means that numeracy is core to being an effective patient. And there's many definitions of numeracy, but the one that I like is this one. The ability to understand, transform, but most importantly, derive meaning from health data. And I'm not going to dive too deeply into numeracy, but I want to ground this in the idea that numeracy is not just about education. Right? There are plenty of highly educated people out there who are not, in fact, highly numerate. And vice versa. Right? Numeracy can come through experience. And the one that always strikes me is, how many people play fantasy sports? Right? This is a particular kind of numeracy to understand that if the batter that you're following has a 257 batting average and went four for five yesterday, what is going to happen to that? Right? There's a lot of calculation and meaning rolled into that process. And people get numeracy skills through experience, not just through formal education. So we need to think about the ability to process numbers as being an independent skill, something which is critical to people's abilities to do what they need to do on an ongoing basis to manage their health. So let me ground where I want to go in a concrete example. One, this is made up, but I think it captures the spirit. I'd like you all to imagine Robert. And picture Robert as your prototypical middle-aged American. Right? So he's in his 40s. You know, house, kids, dogs, I don't know. We were talking yesterday about chickens. Are you talking about chickens? Okay. Um, my guess is, if you really take that picture in your mind, there's two other characteristics of Robert that come to mind. They're unfortunate, but they're true in today's America. One is that Robert is carrying more pounds than he used to and than he should. And the second is that he doesn't get as much exercise as he once did. Now, Robert is not unaware of these facts. And hence, 
Robert might actually be curious as to whether or not he faces any cardiovascular disease risk as a result of his weight and his lack of exercise. And so he might do what we do in the modern age, right? You go online, you Google it, and find any one of the dozens of cardiovascular risk calculators that are easily available online. And so let's imagine he does that, and he goes online, and he pulls up one that says, calculate your heart disease risk score. And he puts in, you know, starts asking him questions. Okay, what's your age? Okay, how much do you weigh? Types in a number, deletes it, puts in the real number, puts in his blood pressure, assuming he can remember what his blood pressure is, etc. And then, finally, it comes back and it spits out the result. And it tells him, your 10-year risk of cardiovascular disease is 11.22%. Okay. So let's imagine that he then goes and maybe meets some of his friends. Maybe there's a barbecue. Maybe he goes to the bar. I don't know. He meets some friends, and they ask him, what did you do today? And he says, so I used one of these online calculators. I put in my numbers, and it told me what my heart disease risk was. But there's a problem. Am I high risk or not? Right. Let's assume for the moment that the cardiovascular risk calculator that, that he used is in fact evidence-based, that he input his numbers appropriately, that the number that it spit back is in fact an appropriate estimate of his risk. He didn't get what he wanted from that. Right. The accuracy of the number didn't meet his need. So we have a problem. Right. If we're going to give people access to risk information, they're not doing it just because they want to, I, hey, I'm an, I'm an 11. No, I don't care if I'm an 11 or a 14 or an 8. I care if I'm going to live. I care if I need to see my doctor. I care if I need to change my behavior. So if the number doesn't get me to that point, it's not doing its job. So let's just walk through some of the problems here. Problem one. Do we really think we know his risk to a hundredth of a percent? <laughs> and you think that's bad. I have seen online risk calculators that took it to four decimal points. <laughs> really? <laughs> and it's not just that we know that there's error on the estimates, right? His, his memory of his blood pressure, even the very concept of a blood pressure is not as reliable as to, enough to give you that degree of precision. But there's another issue, which is this. In a paper I did a few years ago, we randomized how detailed the level of precision was that a risk calculator returned the results to a patient. And it affects the psychology of this, right? Integer results, right, 11%, were not just more memorable, but they were perceived as more trustworthy by patients than the more precise estimate. And yes, we controlled for whether it was above the number or below the number. We controlled for all that. It actually matters. So why are we giving people more precision than they actually want? So that's problem one. Problem two, we give them a number. Why? I mean, really, why? We know from decades of research that the very concept of a probability is difficult for people to understand. There is no reason why we have to only give someone 
And I won't go into all of the evidence base behind this, but the evidence base that I and others have been working on over the last 10 years strongly argues that if you're going to present a risk percentage to somebody, the format to do it in is this, an icon array, a matrix of people. And yes, it does matter if it's people and not blocks and not smiley faces, people that are colored in to represent the degree, the proportion of people who have events occur, and, and this is critical, at the same time representing the proportion of people who do not have events occur. Right? The problem with numbers is they only represent the numerator. They don't visually, auditorially, right? there's no point if I say you're an 11%, there's no point at which it says, oh, that also means you're an 89, an 89 chance of nothing happening. But a visual display like this combines both of those things integrally. And it really does make a difference, particularly for people with lower numeracy skills. Because even if you're a highly numerate person counts these icons, you may or may not notice that you're doing it, but that's what you do. And there's good eye tracking data to show this. But a less numerate person just gets the gist. They're like, oh, that's mostly white, or mostly, actually. That's a lousy projection. There's actually gray people up there. You just can't see them. <laughs> it's like, hmm, that's interesting. Um, now, for those of you who are like, yeah, 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 this is a good idea, but if I can't do it in Microsoft Excel, I can't do it, let me point out that one of the things that I and my colleagues in Michigan have developed is this, a website called iconarray.com, which is a free online icon array generator. And this entry point, clinician.iconarray.com, um, is specifically designed so that you can get from the splash page to a graph you can show to a patient in 30 seconds. We anticipated that the core issue is if I'm going to try and use this in a clinic visit, time matters. So there's, we stripped off a lot of stuff to get to this point. Now, the third problem, however, with Robert's story, and fundamentally the one that I want to talk most about today, is this. Robert didn't get what he wanted when he went to the risk calculator. What, what, what Robert wanted was to be able to categorize himself, to feel motivated to take action about his health, to feel relieved or confident that he's OK. What he got was a number that didn't actually translate into that intrinsic meeting. And as a result, he was left unsatisfied, despite the accuracy of the information that he was provided. So how do we think about solving that problem? So I want to start with a little bit of more theoretical overview, and then I'll get into very practical things. The one point to make here is that to say you're giving somebody a risk does not capture the point that there are many different kinds of data that are all risk. Right? If I say to you, you're at risk of something, that's a risk communication. But so is a person without this condition has x percent chance of something happening, but a person with this, y risk, with this additional risk factor has a y percent chance of that happening. That's also a risk communication. But it's a much more precise one. It's a much more detailed one. And which one of these types of risk communications you might want to be doing is not random. Right? It's a function of what are we trying to accomplish. And so the point I'm going to try to make here is that what we need to think about is not, have I given somebody risk information, but have I aligned what I'm giving somebody in this moment 
to their need. And I've highlighted that middle there because what Robert's need was, was motivation. He wanted a piece of information that would motivate him to act or make him feel comfortable that he didn't need to act. He didn't need to avoid surprise and regret. He was already aware of the fact that he's overweight, but nor is he making some complex multi-attribute treatment decision. Right? The precision, the numerical component of that wasn't actually aligned with what his purpose was at that moment. Now, maybe at some other point in time he's going to need more detail, but not then. The concept here, this is a big long term, but it's actually pretty straightforward, and I'll explain it in a moment. The concept here is a term called information evaluability. Uh, this is a term that came out of the marketing literature a few years ago, and I think it's best captured by the following cartoon. This is an old Foxtrot cartoon um, in which Jason goes to a gumball machine, and he puts in his money, and he gets two gumballs. And he is ecstatic because he's got two gumballs. He feels like he's beat the system, etc. And then he discovers he was supposed to get three. <laughs> and he's pissed. He still has two gumballs. Right? The core outcome, his objective outcome, is unchanged. But his psychological experience of that outcome is fundamentally a function of whether he expected to get one or he expected to get three. What that means is that ultimately, the meaning that people take away from data is not driven purely by what the number is, but by how it relates to the standards of reference that we provide them. And so the ball game becomes, what are those standards of reference? So let's walk you through some examples of this. You may or may not be familiar with radon. If you have a household radon level of six picocuries per liter, and yes, that is what that is, picocuries, is that good or bad? By show of hands, how many think that's good? How many think that's bad? How many have no freaking clue? <laughs> Radon's kind of important. I will tell you now to calibrate you that that is significantly above the EPA's action threshold of four. Now, having told you that, that reference point of the action threshold, that six now doesn't look very good. And that's the meaning-making process that we're talking about. But let's hold on to how important these reference points are. Because here's another one. Right? If the action level is four, how do you feel about a 3.6? Are you good? Well, I'm below, the, I'm below the action level. I must be good, right? Are you concerned if I then give you a different reference point, which is, and this is a very rough approximation, but the lung cancer risk associated with long-term exposure to risk at that level is approximately equivalent to smoking two cigarettes a day. You happy with being a 3.6? No, because I've just given you a very different reference point, one that carries with it a lot of emotional meaning. Now, that's not a pack a day. That's not nothing. Here's another example. Five-year breast cancer risk, 2.6%. Now, if you're not a very numerate person, you look at 2.6%, that's a small number. Now, those of you in the room, good, bad, not sure. Okay, I can tell you that when the clinical trials for tamoxifen and raloxifene were under, being under underway, the inclusion criteria for 
because these were trials of medications to reduce primary breast cancer. So you had to have an elevated risk in order to be considered eligible. The threshold cutoff was 1.6%. And in fact, when you go to the NCI's online calculator, they give you reference points. I've circled it down here. If you're a 55-year-old woman and you are 2.6%, your risk is 2.6%, the first thing you see right after that is that the average woman that age's risk is 1.5%. I will put forth this hypothesis that if you see what you see here, you will take away the message that you're at high risk and you will be concerned about it and you will forget what your number was. Because the meaning-deriving process is one of, oh, I've got a reference point. Oh, I'm high, that's bad. But the, the 2.6 and the 1.5 and whatever, why do I have to remember that? I just try to remember that I'm high. And that's all that most people take away from this process. So let me pose this question. If that's all that people take away from this process, why aren't we just giving them that in the first place? What is the purpose of providing that additional detail? One more question. Dioxin. I happen to have done some work in dioxin. 33 parts per trillion, toxic equivalently. Now, my guess is there's nobody in this room that has any clue about how to calibrate on dioxin levels. The reason I've included this slide is not because I want to keep throwing more examples at you. I want you to look inside yourself and feel what it's looked like, what it feels like to be thrown a number that you think, am I supposed to know this? And have no idea what it feels like. That feeling is what your patients feel almost every time you give them a lab result, an ALT result, some blood count result that they've never seen, some hormone level. They don't know what it means. They have no exposure to it. They've never seen this number before. That level of confusion, that emotional sense of, should I know what this is? That is the experience of most patients when they see their lab results. And it doesn't have to be that way. The problem here at its core is that we all suffer from the curse of knowledge. And the curse of knowledge, uh, so Chip and Dan Heath in their book Made to Stick, this is a bestseller about 10 years ago, talked about this. And the fundamental problem is all of us are experts. We get exposed to information on a daily basis. And that very familiarity with it makes it almost impossible for us to realize how unfamiliar it is to anybody else. Right? We don't realize, we can't put ourselves in the shoes of people who have never seen this stuff before. Which means that we don't automatically create the context and tell people, share our background knowledge, because it seems so obvious to us that we don't necessarily feel like we need to share it. And so the problem becomes, how do we create systems so that that kind of information can be shared automatically? Hard to evaluate data. All of the things that we've been talking about here require reference standards in order to be meaningful. And the literal truth is that such data are ignored in decision making unless you take steps to provide those reference standards. People will literally make decisions on everything else, but not the data, even if the data is the most powerful thing you're giving them. So information evaluability. 
I, I like to make parallels to literacy, right? We, we worry about health literacy because if we give information to patients and they can't read it and they don't know the terms, they can't use it. Well, information evaluability is the key to functional numeracy. If we're going to give patients data, just like we have to use plain language, when we talk to patients, we need to use clear reference standards and plain presentations when we're giving them data. And the question becomes, how do we then do that? So what I'm going to do for the rest of the talk is to talk about examples. How do we help patients through some particular examples? And let's start with lab results. And this, by the way, is not just a mock-up. This is a screenshot from a patient portal. That's what you get. Your values, standard range, some units that look really scary, and that's it. So here's the question. Given that patients now have direct access to laboratory test results, can they use them? Right? The value of these data comes in people's ability to take the number and figure out its meaning. And if you can't at least start from the point of, do I know if it's in or out of range, you're not going to get anything. Right? We, we would hope that people would be able to use the data beyond just that. But let's just start with the, the most fundamental skill. Can a patient recognize when a lab result is out of range if it's given to them in this kind of a table? So what's out of range? I'll help. There's three things here that are out of range. Now the question is, how well can patients do that task? Figuring out on the line by line, am I in, am I out? So to look at this, I and my colleagues developed a hypothetical scenario. We, in this particular one, we focused on type 2 diabetes, context in which patients are getting laboratory test results on an ongoing basis. Set it up so that they had been tested previously or were getting a follow-up result outside of clinic context and had an explicit goal of having their A1C below 7. And then we gave them CBC counts, hemoglobin A1C, a whole set of stuff at once and said, look, find what's important here. And just like in the example I showed you before, the tables included the standard range, but no other indicator, no flags, nothing else to mark whether or not something is inside of range or outside of range. We wanted to see whether or not people could do that. They got this. Pretty straightforward. Nothing surprising. We even called out the hemoglobin A1C in its own section. Hard, not hard to find. We did two things, though. First was we randomized whether the hemoglobin A1C value was 7.1 or 8.4%. And second of all, we randomized whether it was the only thing that was out of range or if there were lots of things out of range. The cognitive processing demand, right? You're going to have to search through lots of stuff. Was there only one thing you've got to search for? And then we looked and we tried to see, could people identify it? And there's lots of data behind this, but I'll just focus down on a couple key points. Oh, got to give you the sample. Um, you could love to do this in patients, in real patients with real diabetes. Um, my problem with doing those kinds of studies is the amount of time and effort it takes is huge. I do a lot of research 
in terms of information presentations. And so one of the quick ways to do this with large sample sizes, so we can actually test to see whether presenting exactly the same information in one way versus another makes a difference in people's responses, is to use online samples. And so this was done using a demographically diverse online sample, um, restricted to adults aged 40 to 70. And we measured both their health literacy and their health numeracy. And that becomes very relevant in a second. So here's the core finding. This is the percentage of people who could accurately identify whether or not the hemoglobin A1C value was out of range by numeracy and literacy. So in the highly, these people over here, the highly literate and highly numerate participants, they don't do as well as we would like up around 75%, and that's true both for participants with and without diabetes themselves. But if you go down here, the low numerate, low literate population, less than half of them are actually able to identify whether or not the test result is out of range. That's the first step we might want somebody to do with test results, not any more detailed calibration of how does their result relate to their risk, how big of a deal is it if they move their A1C by 0.5%, things like that. That's just the minimum. And we also asked them, how likely are you to say you need to call your doctor? Now, the absolute levels here, this is a hypothetical scenario, so don't worry too much about the hypothetical, about the absolute levels. But notice that in the high literate, high numerate group, they were sensitive to the difference in the A1C value, right? They were much more likely to say, hey, I need to call my doctor when their A1C value was 8.4 versus when it was 7.1, right? That's what we want. We want sensitivity to the test results. The low numerate, low literate people, no sensitivity whatsoever. Equally likely to say they needed to call regardless of what the test value was. They got nothing from that exposure to that data. So, now what? If tables like what are commonly used is not the right tool, at least for less numerate and less literate people, what is? So I'm going to show you a variety of displays from the grant that James mentioned in the introduction. I'm going to spare you the data because the data is voluminous and we're just in the, really in the process of writing it up now, but you will get a sense as to what the design approach has been to increase the evaluability of these types of data. And the common denominator is the focus on gist. How do we focus people on the core meaning of these data more so than the verbatim information? Let's just start with a simple number line. Standard range, your result, and a range of values shown. And you could do this in a very simple way, or you could add in an extra layer of meaning by color coding this. Now, we can argue about where you want to put the cut points between borderline and high and very high, but the color coding, the category labels, et cetera, provide a powerful cue to people to say, hey, this is bad, or maybe this is not bad. Now, the first lesson that's come from our research studies on this is it's, once you give people a visual display like this, it's not actually that hard to get people freaked out about extreme values. The hard part is getting people to not freak out about values that are outside of the standard range, but not clinically important. 
That's the really hard stuff. And I will come back to that problem in a moment. But whether or not you do this color coding or not, people are actually still, I mean, if, even if they just get this simple display, if they're out here, they're worried. And they respond accordingly. And that's very clear. Now, another problem I want to point out here, and I think it's particularly relevant in the context of type 2 diabetes. If someone is diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, is the standard range really where we want them to go? Right. We know about the potential dangers of excessively tight blood glucose control. If we're giving somebody a reference point, they will pay attention to it. Right. If this is a patient with type 2 diabetes with a 6.2, our data show that most of the people will look at this and say, oh man, I need to get lower. That's not necessarily where we want them to go. So maybe we need to think about providing them information about what their actual goal range is, as distinct from the standard range which is used for diagnostic purposes. So we could test something like this that draws, that gives them two reference points. And now they have this. The problem is, is this is complicated, right? Should I go up or should I go down? Well, and especially if I color code, I mean, this is a mess. And I have the data to show that this is a mess. Right. People just get confused. Right. We're giving them more reference points, but they conflict with each other. Right. The goal range is orange. Wait, what am I supposed to do with that? Is that good? Is that bad? I don't know. The right answer, though, is the one that's going to make us pause a moment. Because the answer that makes this clearest to the patients is this. Get rid of the standard range. Give one reference point, only one reference point, the reference point you actually want them to care about. And when you simplify to this level, almost everybody gets the message. right? If I'm up at 8, I want to go down. If I'm at 6, I want to go maybe a little up. Or at least not be worrying about going further down. More context is not always better. It's the focus. What is the one thing you want that patient to be comparing their number to? And how do we make that clear? So when we go to this question about what is out of range, the problem here is the only reference point I have is the standard range. And it's binary. I'm in or I'm out. So I pay no attention to how far out I am. And in fact, the data we have show this. People freak out pretty much just about the same amount when they're just outside of standard range versus if they're way outside the standard range, because they have no other cue. You have to be a really numerate person to get any further than that. But the core problem is this. Why are we talking to patients about what is normal? Is that really what, in many self-management situations, what the patient's task is? Maybe we need to reflect upon the fact, at least, and this is where I will own my own experience as a patient, I wasn't worrying about whether my bilirubin was normal I didn't care about whether 1.4 was normal. I wanted to know whether it was dangerous. I wanted to associate the number with risk. And I had no information to enable me to do that. But we could. We could provide that kind of information. Maybe doing something like this. So here's an ALT value. I've just drawn a marker there. And you can argue with me about where this is put. This is based upon the clinicians I work with. But the idea is really easy. Let's put a marker here. Here's the point at which I will start to get concerned. <coughs> and that 80, 
does not seem nearly so concerning when I've got that clear marker of here's where I will be concerned. Or perhaps even better than that, leverage the color coding. Give me a gradient. Right? Oh, I'm just barely in the yellow. That can't be that bad. I, I mean, I know I'm not normal, but I'm not bad. And the research data that I have, and I just got this data like last month, shows pretty clearly that a graphic like this increases patient sensitivity to where the test result is outside of the standard range. They're less concerned when it's here, and they're more concerned when they're out here. And that's what we want, right? We want if we're going to give people the data, you want sensitivity to it. Because if you're not sensitive to it, then it's not being used. I'm going to go back to my test results. And by the way, these are my test results. What's dangerous here? It's taken me years of working and work with clinicians so that now, when I look at this, I get what probably most of you got right from the start, which is that nothing here is really dangerous. Right? I don't freak out when my platelet count's 145. 40, maybe, but not 145. All right, I'll take my last five minutes to make one more big point. I mentioned this book. I highly recommend it if you're interested in thinking about the ways to make messages impactful for whatever your audience is, whether it be patients or otherwise. Um, but one of the points that, that uh, Chip and Dan Heath make in this book is that simplicity is the start point. If your message is not simple, and that's simple not dumbed down, simple meaning core, you get to the core point. Everything else flows from that. And they, they particularly make this point by talking about an idea called the commander's intent. And I want to talk about this for a second. Um, this is a concept that actually comes from the military. Um, because lo and behold, militaries have discovered a fundamental truth, which is no battle plan ever survives actually getting to the battlefield. Too much has changed. Situations are different. Things are evolving. There's other factors that you haven't thought of, et cetera. So that when, if you write a, a, an order to a particular unit on a battlefield that is literal, go here and stay there, it almost always ends up being counterproductive because it's not responsive to the realities of the situation. And so the military trains officers when they write orders to write a special piece called the commander's intent. And the commander's intent is the one thing, more than anything else, that the person who's receiving this order needs to take away from it. Right? So if they write an order that says, go take this hill in order to cover the flank of this tank battalion that's trying to cross the river at this particular bridge, the commander's intent is, get these guys across the river. It doesn't matter if the bridge gets blows up. It doesn't matter if the battlefield moves. It doesn't matter if the tanks have to take a detour. You better be doing something to help those tanks get across the river, because that's the commander's intent. The analogy in the patient education context, I think, is obvious. No piece of patient education, no material we give them, no order actually survives interaction with a real patient. It's never as simple as we think it is when we're giving that to somebody. There's always some other complicating factors. There's always something that's changed, et cetera. So do we do what the 
officers do? Do we actually take the point and reflect to ourselves, what is our commander's intent? What is the one thing more than anything else that my patient needs to take away from this particular thing? And sometimes that means that some of the detail that's accurate and might be important to us isn't, in fact, the point. And I'll give you a concrete example of this from a research project that's ongoing right now looking at colorectal cancer screening. Now, commander's intent for colorectal cancer screening at age 50 is pretty easy. Just do it. Right. The risk-benefit trade-offs are really straightforward. We want to get everybody in for their first colonoscopy. It's predictive, long run. Right. This is easy. But what if the patient isn't 50? What if the patient's age 75? What if the patient has multiple comorbidities and perhaps a life expectancy that's short enough that the marginal value of that extra colonoscopy may or may not be worth the risk that person's running? In that kind of context, we can do complex modeling exercises to try and estimate the risk and benefit. And I can present those data to you as fellow scientists. But when I'm trying to talk to a patient, the more data I'm going to give them, the more this person's going to be like, I, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to do this? Am I not supposed to do this? So in order to promote the kind of shared decision-making conversations that might need to be occurring in that kind of context, we came up with graphics that look like this. You'll notice something right away. There's no numbers. There's not even access labels. I mean, there's actual data behind these. But this graphic has one commander's intent. When you were younger, it was a good idea. When you're going to be older, it's going to be a bad idea, and you're somewhere in the middle. And if all the person takes away is, I'm somewhere in the middle, I need to figure out where I am, then maybe we've provoked that shared decision-making conversation that probably needs to be occurring for that patient. Now, not everybody is exactly in the middle. right? Sometimes it really doesn't matter a whole lot, because there's not a whole lot of benefit and not a whole lot of risk. And sometimes it's going to be much more straightforward. Hey, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty close to the 65-year-old over here in terms of my benefit. Maybe I should just go ahead and do that. That's fine. But either way, the core commander's intent is I'm in the middle. And that's all that we were trying to get across. Now, whenever I give this talk, or variants of this talk, I talk with people, and, and I, there's always sort of this under, undercurrent of discomfort. It's like, yeah, I hear you, and, and it's important to present information, and it's important to be clear, but I'm a little uncomfortable with this sort of manipulation component that it feels like you're talking about, right? You're shaping the way people feel about stuff, by what reference points you give them, with the way you shape the graph, et cetera. Can't we just give people a neutral way of presenting this information so that you know, it's straightforward, it's neutral, and we let them make their, their own decisions about that? I understand where that comes from. I really do. There's one core problem. There never has been and never will be an unbiased health data communication, period. If you present one reference point, you shape people's perceptions vis-a-vis -vis that. If you present a different reference point, you shape their perceptions in a different direction. And if you don't present a reference point, you guarantee 
that you create disparities between those people who have the prior knowledge or training or background to understand the context of that information and those who do not. There is no neutral here. We have to pick. The problem is not how do we do this neutrally. The problem is how can we choose what formats we're going to present information in to align to the situation, to align the patient's needs. And when we sit back and recognize our commander's intent, why we are giving somebody data in that particular moment, then and only then can we have the opportunity to identify which formats and which reference points are going to increase patients' understanding in the ways that they need to serve their immediate purposes, to feel motivated to act or not, to be able to choose between this drug or that one, to be able to be aware that they are at risk. And context, more than the data itself, is the mechanism by which we get there. Because the fundamental truth here is uncomfortable, but it's this. Right? Giving somebody the right number, the most accurate number we can for their risk, for their test data, et cetera, is important. But in no way does it guarantee that the patient will walk away with the right message. Thank you all for your time. I'd be happy to take questions. Yes. It was a great presentation. I, mean, I wish it was easy to push a button and develop uh, displays. So uh, we are often either in clinical medicine or in, in my situation in practice environmental medicine. Mm -hmm. End up with patients bringing in numbers. That you Explain this to me. <laughs> and and you and you wish they never had those numbers. Yep. Because they're not. First of all, we don't know what to do with them. Yep. We don't know what to do with them. Uh, uh, or it's uh, their incidental loans yep. that generate, you know, lots of uh, potentially unnecessary and dangerous tests. Yep. Do you have any thoughts about how to deal with those scenarios? I mean, the incidental loma problem is huge, right? The more access we have, the fundamental problem becomes less about gathering information as it is information curation, focusing our attention on what matters and what doesn't matter. Um, I wish I had simple answers. I think you don't actually anticipate that I'm going to have simple answers. Um, my start point is this. Um, we can do a better job of pausing and saying, what does this person need right away? And drawing a distinction between information that they need to be able to have access to if they go looking for it versus information that is core to the message that we want to give them. Right. If that's an online decision aid, there's what will show up right at the beginning and what you can find if you click down through the hyperlinks. If there's the context of a piece of paper, there's what's on top and there's what's in the tables in the back. And it's hard because we feel the sense of obligation that ethically it's their data, they need to have it, they need to have access to it, and, and that's important. But I fundamentally believe that we cause harm by providing people with too much information and not guiding them through that process. And we are the experts in terms of what matters here and what doesn't. So let's own that and say, you know, the first thing I want you to focus on is this. This is actually what's useful. And to be able to put labels on some stuff. I mean, the platelet count example I gave in my table, right? I went in for my transplant because I had really low platelet counts. And I have become very well attuned to meanings of platelet counts. I see a 145, I'm like, yeah, whatever. I'm good. But I also know that patients who don't have that will freak out 
Ah, I'm going to bleed. No, you're not. Not at 145. Um, we can give people that guidance. We just have to own it. Um, and your point about sometimes we don't even know what it means, that gets hard. I mean, I do work in environmental contexts as well, the dioxin stuff, for example. Nobody knows what the effects of long-term exposure to low doses of dioxin is. Nobody does. So it really then freaks people out. Should I be worried about this? Should I not? Yeah, in the back. Thanks, that was really terrific. I'm uh, Corey Segal, I'm a gastroenterologist here. Numbers are one thing, I think you totally nailed it as far as how we think about it. But what my patients are worried about when they go into their epic chart are their imaging results and their pathology results, Yep. which we even have a hard time interpreting what the radiologists really meant when they were writing that. Yep. So what's, you know, what are your thoughts on that, and, and what's the work being done to help us figure out how to filter this information in a way that doesn't really uh, create chaos and, and havoc, and help them understand that there is uncertainty in, in all these as well? Uh, well, let's just start with what's the work being done? Not enough. Um, I think my short answer is going to be unsatisfying, but it's the only one I can give you, which is to go back to the commander's intent idea. Right? We create reports that says, this is what I found from examining the pathology or from examining this image, et cetera. And those reports have one purpose. They are the record that needs to exist for long-term use, for reference purposes, et cetera. But in the moment at which the patient is first being exposed to them, we have a different purpose. And we need to figure out a way to have, maybe have the pathologist write the report and then write the commander's intent for the patient. Right? It's a different message. And you have to think about it differently. And the answer may be, you're fine, even though I'm listing 25 different things here for the record. Or the answer may be, you should talk to somebody about this. Um, but drawing the distinction between a report and a message, I think, is at the core of the problem. Yeah. I heard you comment about uh, something that continues to trouble me about the presumption that we and apply the results of randomized controlled trials or population health statistics to the care of individuals. For example, um, to say to somebody, your risk is X, yeah. because that's what this large uh, uh, study showed, to me is, is uh, on, its, on its face absolutely inaccurate. Uh, we can never say your risk is this. We can say a thousand people who have your profile in the aggregate have a risk of mm -hmm. X and Y, but your risk is not really definable at this point. Correct. So we, we constantly conflate the two. Yep. And I think I think that leads to a lot of um, uh, disturbing conclusions. So I mean, first of all, I wholeheartedly agree about the the fundamental character of risk. Right. When I teach about this, I talk about you know. Um, we use risk sometimes as if it's an individual construct, but of course, no one is ever 90% pregnant. Right? When I went through my transplant, I, it didn't, I was going to live or die, period. I was not going to be 90% anything or 10% anything. And um, there's actually a paper, when I, when I teach about this, I, I reference this. There's an, it's about a 10-year-old article in Newsweek. It's a great story. I'll diverge for a moment because I think it's relevant to this. Um, it was a story of a 30-year-old um, filmmaker in New York City who was diagnosed with lymphoma and given a 90% 10-year survival. 
And it's his story of sort of saying, you know, how did he come to understand what that 90% chance of survival meant for him? Because it's this population level statistic. Um, and the title of the article is A Poker Player's Guide to Beating Cancer. And he talks about, I, I distinctly remember the language. He says, you know, sometimes people, when people get diagnosed with cancer, they find God. No, I didn't find God, I found poker. And he talks about playing poker and being in a hand where he's got a low full house and he knows that there's four cards in the deck that will give his opponent a better full house. And so he's got a 90% chance of winning the hand. And so he bets big and they turn over the cards and he loses. And he talks about how poker players train themselves that when they have that kind of a bad beat, a situation in which they played the odds and it turned out poorly, you get up and you walk away from the table because the emotions that get evoked in that situation are really powerful and that's going to distort the way you play. And poker is played by the year, not by the hand. A poker player who wants to make money has to take that situation and bet big every single time that they've got a 90% chance of winning the hand because that's the way you, you win. But of course, the analogy here in medicine is important. right? One patient plays one hand, but a clinician plays by the year. And so the story is his story of coming to understand that he wants his, his doctor to play poker like he plays poker to bet if he's got a 90% chance, then that's what it is, and to play that hand appropriately, because that's going to give him the best chance. But to also understand that he only gets that one hand, and he's going to still feel all of those emotions if it turns out poorly. And I think that's at the core of the problem here, is that when we talk about risk, we can't blindly conflate the two. Right? There's the population level statistics, which may or may not match well to an individual by the degree to which the factors that are included can be translated to my individual situation. But more fundamentally, there's the point that these things are proxies for what we really wish we know but we can't know, which is the uncertainty of life, about how my particular situation will turn out. Right? When people talk to me about my transplant, they say, wow, you made the best choice. I'm like, I don't know that. What I know is that I survived, that I had the good outcome. I don't know that I made the right choice, because I can never know whether or not I made the right choice. So I, I think to, to wrap up the conversation, um, if we really take the point that when we give people information about risk, it's just a tool to guide them to decisions, to feelings about I need to act or I don't, or this treatment option is better than that one, et cetera, then we can step away from feeling like our goal is to have somebody walk around with that number. Right? I don't need to walk around being an 11. I don't need to know necessarily that the prostate cancer surgery is going to give me a 70% chance of impotence versus 75%. Chance. I guarantee you my decision making is not going to change whether it was 70 versus 75. But I better take away the point that if I'm going to have prostate cancer surgery, that I better be ready for the possibility of impotence or incontinence, because that likelihood is high enough at the population level that I better anticipate that and think about that as I make my decision. More questions? 
thought I saw one there. Okay, well, yeah. I'm just going to ask um, great presentation, Brian. Uh, I noticed on some of your concept um, images that there was no indication of whether bigger is better or smaller is better. Um, and I could imagine a scenario in which there is data being thrown at patients where there's a mix, right? That some measures more is better and some measures less. Do you have a sense about whether we ought to be reporting all in the same direction as flipping things? Oh, this is a long conversation. <laughs> um, I think this depends upon what our purpose is, right? In one sense, we could transform every single laboratory result into a 0 to 10 scale and say, you should be 2 or less, and then just go from there. And that would cause all kinds of distortions, but it would solve all kinds of other problems. Um, I don't know what the right answer is. Um, in the graphics, the anchor point of am I above or below the green was a really powerful cue. And so people rarely got that wrong. Um, but when we had two reference points, it was a mess. And that was sort of the core of the, of the problem. And certainly, there are situations in which I think um, that standard range Right, the standard range exists primarily from a diagnostic standpoint. Right, this is where somebody ought to be. If you're just trying to figure out if there, if something's going on, but once we've diagnosed somebody, the standard range often is not actually what we want to care about. And the fact that we keep giving it to people is a real problem because it can sometimes, literally, be, I mean, that 6.2 example we use precisely because we could then look and see: Did you feel like you needed to go down, or did you feel like you needed to go up? <laughs> Thanks, we're at, we're at time. Uh, you know, if anybody wants to hang around for a few other questions, I mean, I have a, you know, uh, we're going to chat a little bit, chat a little bit after. But I mean, I was going to ask about, you know, you know, I was actually thinking as we're talking, have we done any studies any in this study? About what are the actually active harms that are generated by by this kind of information presentation? I would love to capture how many times somebody calls a doctor's office about a test result that's completely not worthy. Now, we may have some of that data, right? So we have a big GDH you know, platform and a portal. Yep. I think we can start categorizing how, much, how many times is there a portal response occurred to a lab result that is within, yeah. say, the, you know, just past the standard. And that's not going to capture anywhere close to it. I mean, because this. A lot of the harm is is in that core psychological experience, right? It's the number of days that somebody is sitting there worrying about something that eventually they're told they don't need to worry about. But that doesn't—they were harmed during that period of time. Right. It's active harm that we are doing right now. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. We'll move you. We'll move you. I can talk about it.